book of Exodus. Uh, if you want to use a pew Bible, there's uh, red ones right in front of you, and it's found on page 59. So we're looking at Exodus 3 this morning, 3, verse 13 to 22. Moses has just come up to the mountain and he has seen this burning bush and he's overwhelmed with the experience and now he's finding himself commissioned to go to Egypt and he's trying to figure out what's happening, how will, he, how will they listen to him and so he's starting to ask questions and some of these questions I believe are innocent at this point. Uh, he then begins to go into full resistance mode in chapter 4. Uh, But for now, uh, Moses is trying to inquire as to what is the nature of of his mission and with what information will he take to the people of Israel. So let's pick up in verse 13. He has a second question for the Lord. And he said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say to this, the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. I was thankful to hear us sing this morning, Here is Love. I had forgotten in that song there is the lyric about how heaven kisses earth. And uh, it actually is a good segue into my sermon uh, where I want us to take for a moment to think, have you ever 
Could, could you ever possibly describe to someone what a kiss is? And I think that, I actually asked my daughter this uh, this week, and I asked her, so what do you think about what a kiss is? And she said, I, I don't really get the point. And that gave me a certain sense of satisfaction, as a, she's 10 years old. May it ever be that way. Uh, trying to explain God, I think, is a lot like trying to explain what a kiss is. There is certainly de- uh, definitions that are in dictionaries. You can look up the word kissing and get a definition, but that doesn't really describe what the essence of it is. And how do you describe how a mother tenderly places her lips on the forehead of her newborn child? That's something that's uh, very difficult to explain. Words cannot completely capture, nor can they completely describe a kiss, and in the same way, words are inadequate when we try to explain what God is like. In the end, God refuses to be described as a higher power. He refuses to be known simply as the unmoved mover or the uncaused first cause. And while to us, God might be a philosophical problem that we're trying to figure out in our minds, he's nevertheless a personal being who wants to communicate who he is directly to people. Not for us to then turn around and remold him in the fashion of our own desires, but to take him as he presents himself to us. God's essence cannot really fully be defined But his nature can be described in such a way that we understand what he is like just as it is for us to be able to describe an experience like a kiss. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the capacity to understand an intimate relationship with God and to process love within our souls so that we can engage God as he's meant to be engaged. First uh, Peter uh, 1, verse 8, Peter, I think, aptly describes what this relationship is like. He, he's reflecting on those he's writing to, and he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is what it is to know God, is to experience Him in such a way that your, your heart cries out, how can I not love Him who has first loved me? And that's a tremendous uh, gift, to have that kind of a knowledge and intimacy. And love is, I think, a kind of knowledge that is experiential, and it overshadows all kinds of lesser degrees of knowing. You and I might know each other, and we know some of our backstories and some of the struggles and the sufferings, but the family who knows you best is those who love you and are there for you in your good times and in your bad times, and they know you, they love you, they love you in a way that I couldn't possibly express that. 
I want to encourage you this morning to move beyond a superficial knowledge of God. I want you to encourage you to see God not just as a higher power, but enter into a loving relationship with God through His own personal revealing of Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Every person's life has a story And as we move through life, we might say we're on a journey. But as we move through life, we experience milestones that push us further. Perhaps it's in relationship we move further into knowing someone that we might marry. Nevertheless, there are milestones and moments of movement. And in this text, we're seeing Moses, who had an abstract idea of who the God of his fathers was, now on a personal level, entering into a deep personal relationship with his creator. And as he communicates, there's questions that move the conversation deeper and, and moves the story forward. Back in verse 11, the first question that Moses asks of God, he asks, who am I? to enter into Pharaoh's courtroom. Who am I, literally, that I should go? And God responds back with, I will go with you. Do not worry. I will go with you. And then in verse 13, the first verse we read today, he asks for permission to know the name of the one who's sending him so that he can communicate that to his listeners. And in verse 14, we have an answer. And again, this is moving the story forward, but it's going deeper into a relationship with God, the one who manifested himself in the burning bush. And he says in verse 14, tell them, I am. I am the one who sent you. Now the story of the Exodus won't go forward unless... Moses is ready to hear with an attitude of receiving and obedience. He's given information. Now he's being invited into a deep relationship with God that exists on the basis of obedience and response. Ironically, as we walk through this chapter and the next, we're going to see Moses not really listening with a view to obey. He's listening, but he's resisting. He doesn't like what he hears, and he's afraid. But ironically, Moses is told, the elders in Israel will listen to you. And here we see Moses, ironically, not listening to God himself. And I bring this up as a point of, it's not just simply statistical detail of any kind, it's really it's important for us to realize that in order for even ourselves to go deeper with God, we cannot resist what he communicates about himself. And what he asks us to do, if we're unwilling to do it, we're not really going to be hearing in the same way that Moses was not really hearing, even though he was asking questions. And so I want to assure you that as this paragraph progresses and we see this glimpse of like 
amazing looting of Egypt that's going to occur, gold and silver and precious gems being carried out miraculously, that the greater glory, the greater gift in this paragraph is really coming to a deep sense of knowing of God himself. Silver and gold do not matter. Wealth and prosperity don't count a cent. What matters is knowing God personally, intimately, because in Him is life everlasting. And as we walk through this text, I want to explore in depth, I'm not going to go through every detail in this text, but what I want to focus in on this morning is the name, the name that's given, the significance of the name, and how that relates to our own relationship with God through Jesus Christ this morning. And I want to express that the big idea in this text is that God's name represents his abiding identity of absolute existence. That sounds like a lot. But I hope that through this we'll understand the significance of God's name. It's a gift. I know recently I've preached a sermon, a nurturing sermon, a couple weeks ago. I preached a nurturing sermon in which I described how God is never absent, no matter what trial we go through. Last Sunday, I preached a sermon to try to guard the flock from false teachers who don't really take seriously the holiness of God. And in this sermon, it's kind of an equipping type of sermon to kind of help give you some knowledge of the Lord so that you might grow in grace and in the knowledge of Him so that the glory of God might be fully seen within our own hearts. So I invite you to lean in this morning and think critically and equip yourselves with the truth of God's name this morning. I want to first show you that I personally see in this name, as bizarre as it may sound, I am, as a name, I see in this a Trinitarian statement of God's person. Many biblical scholars have noted that there are hints of God's triune beings throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 1, verse 26, is one of the earliest manifestations of this, in which when we hear of man's creation, God says, let us make man in our image. And you can hear the singularity, but yet the plurality in that statement. And making man in our image is manifest in a, a binary division of man and woman who share love for one another. And I see in that a representation of the triune being of God. This morning, I also see I am vocalized out loud three times. He could have said it once, but there are three utterances of his name that occur in succession. And each utterance, I believe, carries within it a unique feature of God's identity. Before I show you these, I want you to understand that the Western Church has historically considered the incomprehensibility of God's being as being displayed somewhat in our own beings as humans. 
And they tried to explain, I think they did a pretty good job of it. While I understand you can't fully explain the Trinity, I do think they did a good job helping us to see how that our minds and how our mind functions, there are threefold operations that occur simultaneously at once. You all have memories of what you, well, you might have some memories of what you did in the sixth grade, but you might have to fight for a little bit to kind of, you have to might take time to choose to remember those things. And there is a, a degree of understanding of a context that occurs. And as you engage with memory, all three of those functions in your psyche work together as one. And it's you can't really divide those one from the other. And I felt like that's, I think that's a pretty good description of three in one. Manifest in our personhood as we display the image of God. Here, I want us to think through the function of God's being. The ancient church has often thought of the Father as being a fountain of being, the one out of which the Son communicates, and then the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. And so I want to show you how I see this in this text. In verse 14, we see the simple fountain statement. I am who I am. That's like the source out of which everything flows. And then you see, uh, at the end of verse 14, we see a communication of direction as the Word of God is giving, is creating motion for Moses. I am has sent you. There is the Son, I believe, in this movement. And then we have the third aspect of the Spirit filling Moses with the words and communicating the essence of who God is. And we see that in the fuller statement where he says in verse 15, And God also said to Moses, Say to this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. That is the inspiration of a prophet taking place. And I see in these utterances the, most, the manifold beauty of God's being on display. There is in this utterance as well a second characteristic in which we see the essence of God as above and apart from all God. You have to hear these words in a context of the Egyptian world. In the Egyptian world, the pagan mind was captivated with the material world as being animated by spirits and also by a pantheon of gods. What Moses hears here is that God is not like the Egyptian gods in any sense of definition. He's not like the Egyptian god Amun-Ra, Amun-Ra cannot be, Amun-Ra is assigned a place within Egypt. He's, death, he's linked to a capital. He's linked to the sun. And that's his domain. Would not asking for God's name simply make him just one of the gods, though? 
And in Moses' mind, it may be that he inadvertently is trying to categorize God in his mind by comparing him with other kinds of gods. And I believe what Moses is hearing here is that by God saying, I am, it's a refutation of the very idea that God can be placed among other gods. He is above every god of our own human imagination, and he is apart from anything that we could ever consider. He is saying that his existence is absolute existence. Now, I know that we're not all philosophically minded, but I think that we can identify perhaps maybe with the parents of Samson from the book of Judges when they were approached by the angel of the Lord The Lord appeared to them in the form of an angel and spoke to them, and they instinctively said, What is your name? And the angel of the Lord said to to them, Why do you ask my name? It's too wonderful. And that's how our God is. His name is so wonderful. We can't put anything, we can't pigeonhole him anywhere because he is above every God. And by saying I am, he's saying I can't be defined. But yet, nevertheless, he gives us a name. Isn't that unique? He gives us a name that in the Hebrew has four letters, four consonants. And these letters represent God's covenantal name with people. I think there's a slide here for this where you can see the four letters. Hebrew is a unique language that doesn't have vowels like English does. They're assumed as a spoken language. People mentally fill in the vowels as they're reading the consonants. And so uh, there rose in time within Hebrew tradition a superstition about uttering the name, and they refused to use the vowel pointings that would be associated with those four consonants. And so what they did is they substituted the letters, the vowels that you see in the word Adonai, and re-pronounced it, Yahweh. And as they pronounced it that way, over time, the original vowels that were original were kind of lost in people's memory because they were afraid that they might take God's name in vain. Scholars have done some work, and I think they're probably pretty close to it. The original vowel pointings of the word to be are A and E. And so by insertion, what we may have is possibly the actual name being Yahweh, which uh, may be unfamiliar to most of us here. But I think what is more important than even the fact that we can identify the vowels and the, the consonants, what we have here is that this is the God of Israel who always exists Absolutely. It is a description of his identity. But it is also something, I think, when we consider, have you not ever heard people say, you know, that there are no absolutes? Right? What God is saying here is that I am absolute. And so when you hear people talk about, oh, you can't argue in absolutes, what they're actually saying is, you can't actually claim that there is an original God. 
And here he shows up and says, I am. And this is who I am. I am tied to your forefathers, Moses. And you need to come into relationship with me just as they came into relationship. And in Egypt, God speaks to Moses again. And remarkably, in Exodus 6, verse 2, Moses is told that he's been given a very precious gift to know God's personal name. God says to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, that's Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And I see in this that there is a very, there's a preciousness in having a, an understanding of God's personal name. And in pagan mystic religion, to know a God's name was to exercise authority over top of that deity. But this reverses things. Because Moses is gifted with the knowledge of God's name. Moses has no authority over top of God. In other words, you can't claim to know God if you don't submit to his authority. Anyone who claims to be a follower of God cannot make that claim if they refuse to open the word of God and be responsive to it. You might have a relationship with God, but it may not be the kind of relationship that you think. So it's really important for us to see the significance of his name, the distance of his name, but yet that his identity is also tied directly with humanity, with his name. Uh, verse 15, we see the utterance again given to him. In verse 15, God also says to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Again, pagan culture created gods in their own image. Uh, Ephesus, in New Testament time period, Ephesus had the goddess Diana. And they had a cult tradition, and there were silversmiths who made money off of this, this pagan deity. Memphis, Thames, Luxor, all had, all had gods of their own. But make no mistake, those cities who had their own gods were very much like sports teams who pick out mascots. What sets Yahweh apart is that he ties his identity not with a particular geographical location or a city. He does so with a family. So that no matter where they travel, no matter where they go, he is always with them. After the exodus from Egypt and just before they crossed the Jordan River, God rehearsed the nature of this arrangement. He didn't want them to forget that they had not been the instigator of this relationship. As I said, cities will pick out like sports teams, mascots for their own personal identities. This didn't work this way with Israel. 
And in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8, we read, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers. Please notice the direction of this adoption. Towns, cities do not adopt the true and living God. It is the true and living God who adopts people. And God's willingness to tie himself to a human family is a much more radical expression when we come to the New Testament. Because it's through the incarnation of Jesus Christ that the second person of the Trinity took on a Jewish identity, tying himself to them forever. God will never forget his people. Isaiah, the great prophet, said, Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. You know, there is a sense in which when we come to Jesus Christ as Gentiles, we are being plucked out of all the nations of the earth and we become, as it were, nothing in Christ but we are being grafted into a family. We are being grafted into the nation as, of Israel because Christ is Jewish. God is bound to Israel, and we are grafted into the family of God. And the church, make no mistake about it, does not replace Israel. We become grafted into Israel as a new Israel with our Jewish coming king, coming in the clouds. And there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. God is forever identified with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we ought not have Gentile pride that assumes that God is done with his people. God is forever identified with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, it is not enough just simply to be a sincere Muslim, a sincere Hindu, a sincere Buddhist. Even Pharaoh of Egypt was a monotheistic observer. He had a god to which he was personally responsible to. He chose this god and he worshipped it exclusively. We hear the words of the Samaritan woman at the well, she identified her faith by traditions that she had received from her experience. And so she addressed Jesus, who was getting a little bit too close to her heart, and putting her finger, his finger on her sin. And she turned around and said, Well, you know, our fathers have worshipped here, and, and, and your fathers have worshipped there, and who's to say what's, what's what? And Jesus looked at her and said, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. 
There is a sense in which we have no need to know God's name, but there is also another sense in which knowing God's name is absolutely everything. Because God has tied his nature to the Jews forever, he did so in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter is then justified in telling a Jewish council, don't overlook this fact. There is a name that's been given among men to which we are ultimately responsible to. There is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. This is the good news. Can you... All the different options that are out there. You could... It is vain to say that all roads lead to Rome. All roads do not lead to God. That is actually a comfort and a peace because... If you don't know the way, but when you do know the way, you are given great peace, great comfort, and great consolation. There's a fifth and last significance in the giving of this personal name that I want to point out here, and that is that it represents eternal life, and resurrection itself is knowing God personally. Uh, Three times in this text, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Verse 6. You see this in chapter 3, verse 6. You see it repeated as initiating with Moses. And then in verse 15 and 16, it's repeated a second time, I believe with the third voice of the Spirit, and then in verse 16, a unified communication that's to be presented to the elders. And this is significant because I think I did mention this last week, and I, I did. Look, it was said three times here. I can say it at least two times. A Jewish sect asked Jesus his opinion on the resurrection. They thought that they had him tied in a knot because they came up with this hypothetical of a woman marrying five different men and who she would belong to in in the new, new age. And Jesus responded that you don't really know really the questions to ask. There's other questions that you should be asking. Like, what is your personal relationship to this one, this living God? And so he asked them, he said, you know, have you not studied the Torah, and have you not seen it said that God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob? And then Jesus concluded by saying, look, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And this communicates that God so ties himself Two people that death itself cannot lay a finger upon them. And understanding the resurrection is not simply about working out who am I going to be married to in heaven. 
That's way off. The most important thing is, am I bound to Yahweh? Do I have a relationship where I know him, but more importantly, he knows who I am? Does he know me so that when the, the lights darken, that my eyes will open and I shall enter into the kingdom of heaven? Am I bound to him? You see, Yahweh knows some people by name here, and they know who he is. And this itself is eternal life. Just before Jesus was betrayed and taken to the cross, he prayed for the church that they might know him, know the Father as Jesus knows the Father. And he prayed and he said, this is life eternal, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. And you know what? The blessing of eternal life starts even before you die. The awareness of God's presence takes hold of your heart and you love him even though you've not seen him. You know him in such a way that no matter what's going on around you and as bombs are falling in the Middle East or, or troops are moving through Ukraine or it doesn't save you because you know him who has eternal life and he, you have the confidence that he knows you. That is eternal life. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan preacher, a theologian, he was chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, a very difficult time period in English history, described the wonder of, of Christ being born and us having the opportunity to know God through his designated representative, the very second person of the Trinity. He said this, Heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and men. I think that's a beautiful illustration of the baby born in a manger. And I think that we can look at stories, and stories are important for us because it's very difficult to define how God is. And words cannot completely capture all that is involved in what we know by experience. We know what a kiss is like if we've been kissed or we have kissed someone. But in a similar way, it's almost impossible to communicate to others unless they've experienced it for themselves. And what God's name represents to us is his abiding identity as absolute existence. And that's as abstract as I could possibly make it. But we know this distant God who is not distant because we know him in the person of his beloved Son. And the communication of the Holy Spirit within our hearts tells us that he loves us and will not let us go. We are very thankful that God is not abstract in the sense that he's a philosophical problem. He's a person. He's a person that wants to make himself known to us. And I would invite you 
to call out to God and say, will you show me yourself? May I know you as Moses knew you. May I know you as the disciples knew you. Give me your Holy Spirit so that I can see you with the same set of eyes. That can be yours if you will but repent and turn from your sin. And the knowledge of God's name will be given to you through the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved.